Amen. Amen. All right. I want to read a quote from you from a man named Richard Dawkins. Anybody know who that is? He's one of the... uh, He's one of the most fearsome haters of God uh, in our society today. He's an atheist. He wrote a book called The God Delusion in which he tries to systematically disassemble the authority of Scripture, the Christian God. He's an, I believe he's an atheist. Here's, here's how Richard Dawkins uh, sees the God of the Bible, okay? And I'm quoting him. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, this is a tough one, megalomaniacal, he's a megalomaniac, that's what he's trying to say, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Let me think of that. This is who Dawkins thinks God is, the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament. Last week, we mentioned this. I'll mention it again. You know, there was a time in the world where, or in the world we live in, the Western world, where the the primary question people had was, is God real? Is God real? And that was what Christians were trying to answer through apologetics and arguments and science and things. Um, Those days are kind of over. People aren't as concerned with whether God's real. Now the question in culture is, is God good? Is God good? That's the question I think people are asking. Is, is this God, the God that we read about in the volume of the book, the God who we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is he good? Or is he, as Dawkins would say, evil? There's really two, uh, I'll, I'll just read this. Humanity's deepest and most universal error is the assumption that they are, or we are, morally superior to God and therefore should be autonomous from God. Okay, let me say that again because this statement is going to be very important. I'm going to say it over and over this morning. Mankind's most basic failure, most basic sin, most basic error is to assume that we as humans are morally superior to God and therefore ought to be autonomous from God. Okay? What that looks like is the rebellious teenager, Okay, I was one. You guys were probably one. What does the rebellious teenager tell mom and dad? Two things. Number one, you're stupid. I know better, so I get to do whatever I want. I would be better if I was not under your roof, right? To which parents go, oh, you have no idea what it's like to be under your own roof. See, that's, that's the, the, the lie that teenagers believe. And it's the same lie that humanity as a whole has believed about God. That we are morally superior to God and therefore we should be autonomous from God. That's what ultimately people are saying. What does that have to do with Jonah chapter 4? Well, this is exactly what Jonah says about God. He says, I am morally superior to you. And therefore, I should be free or autonomous from you. That's what Jonah's going to say. I want to look at Jonah chapter 4, and I want to ask the question, is Richard Dawkins right? Is he right? Let's look at this God of the Bible. Let's look. We're in the Old Testament, right? Some people don't know what to do with the Old Testament. Okay? And Richard Dawkins, his, he's talking about this God of the Old Testament. Let's get into the Old Testament. Let's look at Jonah chapter 4, and let's just ask the question, is God good? Let's, let's look at it. Let's dive into it. We're going to finish the book of Jonah this morning. It's only been a four-week series. We've just looked at all four chapters. Uh, let's, let's dive right into it. Now, the mistake that people make in reading the book of Jonah is they assume that the book ends at chapter 3. What happens in chapter 3? God chooses to forgive and show mercy to the Ninevites because they repent. Um, And after they repent, um, a lot of people just end the story there in their mind, right? They think, all right, that was the story. Jonah had to go to Nineveh. Uh, God didn't want 
uh, he didn't want to go to Nineveh, so he, he runs away. God ends up you know, swallowing by a fish. He gets vomited out on the shore. He preaches to the Ninevites. They all repent. End of story. But that's not where the story ends, is it? There's a whole other chapter that we need to look at. And in fact, I would actually say that chapter 4 is the key to understanding the purpose and the point of Jonah. So today is really going to be a good summary, a kind of summarizing of what this whole book has really been about. See, the book of Jonah is not about God forgiving people. It's not about the Ninevites. It's not about Jonah. It's not about the, the, the tradesmen or the fishermen that were in chapter 1. The book of Jonah is about God. It's a profile of God's character, of God's nature, of who he is. It's about a God of mercy. That's what Jonah is about. And we're going to see that uh, this morning. The central theme of Jonah is God's mercy. It's come up in every chapter. Jo- Jonah chapter 1, God showed mercy by um, actually saving the, the, the mariners, okay, the sailors. He saves these men. He showed mercy in chapter 2 by not allowing Jonah, even in his hard-hearted rebellion, to sink to the bottom of the Mediterranean, but rather he, he commissions this large fish to swallow up Jonah and to protect him and to deliver him back into God's will. We saw God's mercy in chapter 3 when God chooses to relent and forgive and, and not cause the destruction that he said he would on the Ninevites, this terrible group of people um, in modern-day Iraq. So we've seen God's mercy all along. And we're going to continue to see God's mercy as we look at chapter 4. Now, having said that, let's just dive right in and look at it. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now, we know what just happened. God just relented. He just said, I'm not going to destroy the Ninevites. And here is how Jonah responds to God's outpouring of divine mercy. Verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. Not disappointed, not dissatisfied, not discontent, not frustrated, angry. Jonah's angry. He's mad. Who's he mad at? He's mad at God. He's angry at God. Why is Jonah displeased? He's just pleased because God did not wipe Nineveh off the face of the earth. Now, if you're just joining us, this is your first week um, in the, the series of Jonah. I just need to remind you that the people of Nineveh were a, mass, was a massive urban center of about 120,000 people in modern-day Iraq, and it was part of what was called the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was really one of the first of its kind. It was one of the most bloodthirsty, most violent, most wicked, most evil uh, nations that really ever existed. Uh, they were famous for coming into cities, um, pulling people out of the cities, and skewering them on poles while they were still alive and skinning them. Okay, these were terrible human beings. History records this. Everyone's afraid of Assyria. Everyone's afraid. This, this empire is growing. It's massing. Um, and everybody knows, including Israel, that it's only a matter of time until these guys march on their borders. And when they do march on their borders, Israel doesn't stand a chance. These are bad people. And God chose not to wipe them out. He chose to spare them. Now, for our nice um, sort of Western sensibilities that love the idea of mercy and forgiveness, that seems like not that weird. But for an ancient man in the Middle East, for God not to wipe these guys off the face of the earth is scandalizing. It's unthinkable that God would not wipe these people off the face of the planet. So why is Jonah so displeased about God's decision to spare the Ninevites? Well, there's a few reasons. Number one is this was really bad for Jonah's prophetic career. Jonah was a prophet by trade. That was what he did. And Jonah uh, reflects the um, constituency of his people back at home. See, not only does Jonah not want these guys to be forgiven, nobody in Israel wants these guys to be forgiven. Everybody wants these guys wiped off the face of the earth. So Jonah has to go home now and give people the bad news that he didn't do what they wanted him to do to proclaim judgment and for God to fulfill that judgment. Not to mention, this kind of makes it look like Jonah was a false prophet, doesn't it? Because what did Jonah say in chapter 3? He said that in 40 days, God will destroy you. He didn't say, unless you repent. He didn't say, unless you, know, you do the right things. He didn't say any of that. God didn't do what Jonah said he was going to do. So what does that leave Jonah liable for? He could be considered a false prophet. This is not good for his career. It's not good for his career. It also displeased Jonah because this is not good for his sense of security. 
He doesn't want to go home and live in a world where they're under the threat of the Assyrian Empire constantly. He thought perhaps this would be the moment. If God had leveled Nineveh, the Assyrian threat would be really muted. So Jonah was really hoping that perhaps he could go home and have more secure borders, less fear of being invaded by this looming empire in the north. So this is bad news for Jonah. But there's another reason Jonah's displeased. And the reason is because Jonah thinks, listen, Jonah thinks he is morally superior to God. If you look at your footnote, and maybe, I don't know if you have, if you have an ESV Bible, there's a footnote next to verse 1. And it says that verse 1 could be translated that Jonah was displeased with, uh, that it displeased Jonah and that he thought it was, listen, exceedingly evil of God to forgive them. Jonah's anger, Jonah's displeased, being displeased is actually that he thinks God has done something evil. Jonah thinks God is wrong. He thinks God is in the er he thinks God is in error here. That Jonah thinks that he knows the right thing and that God doesn't, and that God is actually acting wrongly here. So what is Jonah doing? He's putting himself as morally superior to God. Verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord. Now, this is Jonah's second prayer in the book. Remember, his first prayer was as he was sinking down into the Mediterranean. It was a, a prayer of crying out to God to save him. Here we get a different prayer from Jonah. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country. In other words, Jonah's like, I, th we talked about this already, Lord. When you came to me while I was still in northern Israel, before this whole thing happened, you came and you said, I want you to go preach to the Ninevites. Remember what I told you, Lord? Remember what I said then? Here's what I said. He said, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. This is why Jonah ran away in the first place. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Isn't that funny how you, how you have to read that? You know, normally you'd read something like that and it would be like a psalm, like steadfast love. No, Jonah's spitting on the ground. He's angry. I knew you were a gracious God. I knew you were steadfast, slow to anger ready to relent. I knew, I knew you, I know you, you're so con, I knew you're going to do this. <laughs> Isn't that silly? I mean, it sounds silly, but he's, he's angry at God. He's angry at God. How does he know? How did he, how did he know God was going to show mercy on these guys? Because God had been showing mercy to Israel for hundreds of years. God, Jonah was afraid that God was going to be as kind to the Ninevites as he had been to Israel. Because God had been warning judgment to Israel for hundreds of years, and, and, and he had not yet followed through on that. He'd been patient with Israel. What you need to see here, by the way, is that Jonah's problem is not with what God does. What's his problem with? His problem is with who God is. Do you see that? He's not just angry that God is forgiven. He's angry that God is a forgiving God. His issue is with God himself. The problem is not that Jonah did not know God. No, actually, the opposite. The problem is that Jonah did know God, and he didn't like him. <laughs> he hates God. Sam, are you saying as a non-believer? I don't really know. I started this book, I was pretty convinced he was a believer, and the more I read it, I'm like, I don't know about this guy. I think he hates God. He hates the very essence, the very nature of God's being. Now, someone had to write this down. I think it was probably Jonah. So I'm guessing maybe he had a change of heart later and, and he rewrites this about himself. You know, it's a lie to think that people would love God if they just knew God. You know, um, Romans 1 through 3, you can read that. That's Paul's systematic indictment of mankind. And you know what he says? He says, the problem is not that humans don't know God. The problem is that they don't honor him as God. The problem is that they would rather worship creation instead of creator. You know how else I know that? Read Revelation chapter 20. Crazy thing happens. Jesus comes to the earth physically, rules and reigns, sets up his administration in this world. There's this little thing, though, that hasn't happened yet. There's still unregenerate human beings on the earth. And so even though Jesus is physically present, ruling and reigning, you know what happens? Read Revelation 20. Humanity raises up and goes to war against God even with Jesus physically present on the earth. Isn't that crazy? 
What does that tell you about our natural disposition towards God as humans? It's not that we don't know God. It's that we don't like God by nature. And we, by nature, often rebel against him. Jonah doesn't like who God is. He doesn't like that he's merciful. He doesn't like that he's kind. He doesn't like that he's loving. Verse 3, therefore now... O Lord, listen to the drama queen here. This is great. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me. Just kill me, Lord. I just hate living in your world. It sucks. Sound like a teenager? It's like, you just hate your rules. Your rules suck. Kill me. I'd rather die than live in your world. For it's better for me to die than to live. This is the second time Jonah has asked the Lord to kill him. It's the second time Jonah has wished that he would die. Both times, it has come down to him not wanting to live in God's world. He's like, I'd rather die than live in the world that you're ruling. Because I don't like the way you call the shots. That's what he's saying. He doesn't like the way God rules. He'd rather die. Which is really just selfishness. It's really just, it's just Jonah not wanting to surrender to God. Verse 4, and the Lord said... Do you do well to be angry? My free, my free translation of that would be, um, hey, buddy, you really think this is a, you think that you're right here, Jonah? Really? I, did, I say that to my kids all the time. Really? Really? And I make that face right there. Really? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> and now Jonah doesn't answer, but he will. Just, just give him a minute. He doesn't answer. Uh, verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east. You might note that the east is typically um, a reference to rebellion. Okay, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden to the east. Uh, so he goes to the east of the city as a sign of rebellion. Uh, he should have been in the city, right? He should have been in the city because that's where God called him to be, in the city. What should he have been doing? Well, you got 120,000 people that have softened their hearts to Yahweh, that have all of a sudden put away their violence and put away their wickedness. And here you have the, the prophet of God who's like, I'm going to go outside because I don't want to be around you. I can't even look at you. I don't want to smell Nineveh. I don't want to eat Nineveh food. I don't want to be in Nineveh streets. I'm going to go outside of Nineveh. Rather than seeing this as an opportunity for him to lead this, these people that are softened to the Lord into what covenant life with Yahweh could look like. And he doesn't do that. He goes outside the city. He doesn't want anything to do with these guys. And he makes himself a booth. What is a booth? It's like a little fort. You guys ever make forts when you were kids? I just imagine like crotchety, angry Jonah, you know, just like grabbing some sticks, trying to mill himself a stinking fort because I don't want to be in Nineveh. I hate these guys. It's hot. This is Iraq, right? It's hot. I just want a little booth. I'm just going to make myself a booth. <laughs> he makes himself a booth. It's the same word that's used of, of the... Um, the, the Jews, when they, they have the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, they make these little tents. It's like camping, basically, to commemorate uh, their time in the wilderness. So he makes himself a little booth to try to shield himself from the sun. Um, he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. The only thing Jonah's missing here is popcorn. I'm serious. Like, he wants, he wants God to fry these guys so bad. And he's just hoping. Maybe they'll botch it. You know, maybe, they'll, maybe, maybe God will not show mercy. Maybe God will decide. Remember, I told you last time when God threatens uh, Nineveh, he used the same word that he used to threaten Sodom. So I really think Jonah is, is expecting it to rain meteors or something. Like he's expecting this place just to get swallowed up. He's made himself a little place. He doesn't want to any, be anywhere near these guys. He's waiting for the show. A couple of things here. First of all, you know, it's, it's, a re it's a state of rebellion to sit outside of the world and hope that it will cook. And I, and I really need to say that because there is a, 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 a posture right now within some evangelical Christians of, I'm going to buy my freeze-dried food, I'm going to buy my guns, and I'm going to sit in my house and lock the door and wait for God to cook the world and rapture me. You might think that's funny, but <laughs> that's selling right now on YouTube, man. People love that idea. Screw the world. The world's, the world's broken. They can have it. Whatever. I'm just going gonna, gonna to hide out. I'm going to strap into good ship salvation, wait for God to rapture me, and then God will cook the world and we'll be good. We'll get a new heavens and a new earth. Okay, that is systematically rebellion. God has called us to be in the world. Not of the world, but in the world. We are supposed to be right here. 
If God calls you to live, you know, move to a Republican state, fine. I will stay in Babylon. Thank you. Okay? I will stay here because God has called us to be here. And he's called us to rub shoulders with pagans because we have the gospel. We have the hope. We have the remedy for humanity. We know the good news that saves people. Yes, Jesus is coming back. Yes, Jesus is going to purify the world and recreate it. But for crying out loud, let's get to work. I don't want to be Jonah on a hill, a grumpy evangelical with my booth, waiting for God to cook it, eating freeze-dried meals. That's not what I want to do. I want to be making disciples. Great commission. Let's get in the trenches. Let's tell people about Jesus. Okay? Sorry, that's a soapbox. Um, we make these booths. You know, we make these booths. We try to make these places of comfort when we're in rebellion. And the problem with these little booths we make for ourselves is they're not comfortable. And Jonah's booth is not comfortable. The sun is still blasting through the cracks as he's sitting there trying to find some comfort. It's probably 110 degrees in the desert as he sits and waits. And verse 6 is so interesting. You know, this, this story is brilliant. God, it's so interesting to read. I would encourage you um, later just to go back and read the whole book. It's just, it's so genius. The Lord is so genius in the way that he interacts with his people. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant. You notice it always says appointed. He always appointed. He appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. What a kind God. What a kind. He, he's, he's got every right to be like, you sit there in your little booth, you angry little prophet, right? <laughs> Just sit there in that booth and fry, you know? He doesn't do that. He causes, he appoints a vine to grow over the top of the booth and shade Jonah. God is so kind. He's just showing mercy after mercy after mercy here on Jonah. And God is appointing. You notice all through this book, he appoints wind, he appoints water, he appoints fish, he appoints sun, he appoints plant, he appoints worm. All of the created order obeys God except who? Humans. <laughs> Humans. Everybody else is on God's program. Everybody else gets it. He's the author and sustainer of life. He's the one that made us. He calls the shots. He makes the rules. He's ultimate reality. He has all the power. Yeah, plant obeys. Yeah, worm obeys. Fish obeys. Jonah, I'm better than you, God. And I'm angry at you, God. Why don't you kill me? Because I hate your world. That's what humans are like and cast as in this in this story. Now, Jonah didn't earn this plant. He didn't make this plant. Yet, what does he do? This is classic millennial stuff here. He immediately assumes he's entitled to it, right? Remember when we got those checks a couple years ago? We we're like, whoa, free money. And all of a sudden, we're like, you should pay for my college debt too. And I should keep getting checks in the mail, right? It's amazing how quickly things go from mercy to entitlement, right? And so Jonah immediately feels like, this is my plant, my plant, Thank you, Lord. I deserve this plant. And you'll see that here in a, in a minute. Verse 7, but when dawn came up the next day, so God gave him a good 24 hours of shade, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die <laughs> again, <laughs> three times now. Kill me, Lord. He's so emo. You just picture him with like black hair over his eyes, listening to Linkin Park, just like. <laughs> I'm in one of those weird moods today. I'm sorry. I think I know you guys too well. I think that's part of the problem. I just, he's just so emo, man. Kill me, Lord. I don't want to live in your world. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So God's mercy brought the plant and God's mercy took the plant. Both things were merciful. You say, how? Well, because in God's mercy, he wanted to shade Jonah. But in God's mercy, he needed, to jo he needed Jonah to feel the reality of what was going on internally. He needed him to feel externally what was really going on internally. And what's going on internally is that Jonah is rotting in his soul. He's rotting. God wants Jonah to feel the discomfort so that he tunes into the reality that he is totally off base here. He's totally 
broken. You know, God gives and God takes, and both often are merciful. And for the believer, there is no sorrow without sovereign purpose. I say that all the time. I need to say it again. There's no sorrow without sovereign purpose. God doesn't just take things out of our life for no reason. He takes things out of our life because he has a purpose. God has a purpose in removing this plant from Jonah. He has intention for this. He loves Jonah. He's being kind to Jonah. He's trying to work stuff out of Jonah. He doesn't want Jonah sitting there in his own selfish booth. He wants to work stuff out of his soul. So he brings this plant as a kindness, and he takes the plant as a kindness. And, you know, we're really good at seeing God's kindness and giving things. We're not so good at seeing God's kindness and taking things. And I'm not downplaying loss. Loss is a real thing. Loss is painful. Otherwise, it wouldn't be loss. But as Christians, we are set apart in that we believe that our God is kind and that in his mercy, he gives and in his mercy, he takes. But everything is worked together for our good and for his glory, which are the same thing. Verse nine. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? You notice God's asking kind of the same question he did earlier, except he's saying it in regards to the plant now. Do you do well to be angry to the plant? And listen to Jonah's response. Yes, I do. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. He's such a miserable person, you know? He's, he's, such, a, he's such a wretched guy. Can you imagine trying to be friends with this guy? God's trying. He's trying to be friends with him. And he's just... He's just miserable. So, once again, Jonah says, I would rather die than live in your world. I'd rather die and live in the world that you rule because you are kind and you are mercy, merciful. And the Lord said, now, I, I, you need to see this. God's going to use this plant. This isn't just random. God didn't just cause a plant to grow so that he could do it for fun. He's got something he's trying to teach Jonah here. He's going to use the plant as an object lesson. Let's see what it is. Verse 10. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 human beings who do not know their right hand from their left. By the way, that's not an insult on their intelligence. That's an insult on their morality. That's an insult on how much they understand about God and God's ways. He's saying these guys, they barely understand truth. And notice, notice how he ends the book, okay? Anytime, anytime cattle is the last word of a book, that's kind of interesting. He says, and also much cattle. The end. Isn't that a great ending? Isn't that a great ending? Like, and, and also much cattle. Okay, that's the end of the book. Um, what in the world? Like, what's, what's God trying to, to communicate to Jonah here? It's actually not that hard to, to figure out. I think if you really think about it, it's, it's, it's fairly simple. This is a lesson for Jonah in values. In values. See, God wants Jonah to see what he values, and he wants him to see what he values in contrast to what God values. Jonah, what does Jonah value? Jonah values himself. That's what Jonah loves. Jonah loves himself. Jonah loves his comfort. Jonah loves his career. Jonah loves his life. He loves his ethnicity. He loves his future. He loves his image, his report, his notoriety. He loves his shade. That's what Jonah loves. That's his value system. His value system is intrinsically selfish, and the plant is proof of that. It says Jonah pitied the plant. Jonah didn't pity the plant. He pitied himself. He pitied that he no longer had his little plant. Okay, that's what he pitied. Now, what does God value according to this? God values human life, doesn't he? And I'm not talking about covenant human life specifically. I'm talking about pagan human life. I'm talking about the worst humans alive. God values those humans. You see that? He cares for these 120,000 of the worst people that ever lived on earth. He cares for them. His value is in human life and lost life and morally ignorant life and even all created life, even the cattle. You know, God loves his creation, every single part of it, not just humans. He loves all of it because he created all of it. He loves humans particularly. He loves fringe life, broken life. 
outcast life, forgotten life. He loves humans, every single one. Every single human. So what is God doing? He's trying to get Jonah, he's trying to relate with Jonah on some level. He's going, Jonah, you know that feeling you just had of, of, of loss when your plant died? Yeah. Okay, how do you think I feel when I look down from heaven and I see 120,000 souls that are about to perish? That if I do not judge, they will continue in such gross immorality that it will actually run contrary to my own just nature. When God looks on the souls of Nineveh, he goes, I pity these. He's, so, he, he's trying to relate with Jonah. Do you see? He's like, okay, you want to be mad about your plant? Great. Don't be mad at me when I care about humanity. Do you see that? He's not rebuking Jonah for being upset about his plant. He's saying, fine, be upset about your plant, but let me be upset about the brokenness of the world and let me do something about it. Stop pushing back against my grace and my kindness and my love for this world. If Jonah feels justified in his sorrow over losing comfort, isn't God justified in his sorrow over losing his own creation? You know, this book right here is, is, is not just a personal letter to you. It's God's revelation of how he is saving that which has been lost. All of creation, from the worm to the plant to the human to the celestial. All of it. God is redeeming it all. And when God returns, he will consummate and finish his redemptive work. Every level he's saving Every level, he's working. God loves his creation. So what do we learn about God in this? Richard Dawkins, how do we respond to this man who has waved 20% of a wave at God, right? This man who has given the middle finger to God, has used such evil, terrible language to describe the God of the Old Testament. How does Jonah chapter 4 answer Richard Dawkins? Well, who do we see here? What God do we see? What is the Old Testament God? What is he? What does he do? What does he care about? He loves human life. Wait, I thought he was a racist. I thought he was homophobic. I thought he was misogynistic. I thought he was genocidal. I, I thought he was a control freak. I thought he was unforgiving. I thought he was petty. Why is this God so kind? Why, why is he so kind? You know the verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. God loves his creation, particularly humans, and he loves lost humans. He has a particular covenant love for his people, but he loves human beings. They're made in his image. They have value to him. So Dawkins doesn't really know what he's talking about. He has decided in his own puny, prideful brain that he is morally superior to God, just like Jonah did. And he is now calling God to the carpet on his own, his own feelings of moral superiority. Isn't that interesting? Jonah had so much pity on himself that he could die over it. Jesus had so much pity on the lost that he did die over it. See, Jonah's like, I, I'll die. I'm so unhappy I want to die. Jesus is like, let me die to save this world. Do you see the contrast there? Do you see the similarity there? If Jonah loves his plant that much, how much does God love the lost, his creation that he made for the purpose of redemption? I want to say this. Someone needs to hear this. Some Jonah in your life may have treated you like you were their plant, like you were an object for their pleasure, like you were given simply because they could get something out of you. Some Jonah might have treated you like you were a log on the fire. That is not how God views you. Jonah wanted to die. Jesus chose to die. Not to escape God's rule, but to realize God's rule, to purchase God's rule. Jesus is the greater Jonah. Remember we looked at this? Jesus said something greater than Jonah is here. It's here. Jesus is not seeing you as something to fry. He's seeing you as something to save. So much so that he would spend divine blood 
and come into this world to purchase us back. Jesus sees you as intrinsically valuable, made not only for his glory, but for your joy, because those two things are the same. Not only to get something from you, but to bless you with God's Trinitarian life forever. He's so good. He's so kind. You know, God feels. Do you see that in the passage? He's not some, he's not some robot in the sky. He's, he's not some, some sort of massive power in the sky. He is a person. He made us based off of his blueprint. You have emotions because he has emotions. That's why we don't demonize emotion. We don't let it rule us either. We are made in the image of a God who is a person. God's a person. He feels. And what does he feel here towards these terrible pagan Ninevites? These blood-curdling, blood-thirsty, multi-murderous people. How does God feel towards them? Pity. He pities them. He pities them. He's a God that feels. He loves his creation. You notice that God is not standing at the door ready to slam it in the face of the Ninevites like Jonah. He's patient. It's amazing out of the words of Jonah's mouth how much truth. Look at verse 2 again. Now Jonah's saying this spitting angry, but listen to what he says. Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee from Tarshish, for I knew that you are what a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. You know what that means, relenting from disaster? It means that when you think about God, he's not sitting there just waiting to push the button and cook his creation. That's not how God is. That's not how he's displayed here. That's not how he's portrayed here. You know those movies? We all know them. They're submarine movies or they're spaceship movies. doesn't matter. It's the same idea. Every spaceship or submarine has chambers, right? And those chambers always have doors that go between the chambers. And the reason is when something ever happens, they can seal off the chamber and save the rest of the ship. So there's probably 50 scenes like this in a movie, right, where, where the hero or whatever is waiting for his friend to come through the door, right? And he's waiting to seal the door until the very last minute, knowing that if, at some point, if he doesn't seal the door, the whole ship goes down. But we don't see the person there going, I'm just going to seal it and walk away. We see them waiting, longing, please hurry up and get through here so I can seal the door. Whatever you think about how God saves and God's sovereignty, one thing is very clear here, and that is that God is longing and he is patient for the lost to come through the door. He's waiting. Now, make no mistake, at some point, God must seal the door because if evil comes into the new creation, we got to start all over. We need a new creation without evil. At some point, God has to end evil, but he is waiting and longing and he is patient and he's relenting. He's waiting to the last moment to do what he knows he must do at some point, which is to judge eternally. It's important that you see that. So does this sound like the Dawkins description of God to you? Sounds like a different God to me. So stepping back, what do we learn about God and what do we learn about man here? We learn that Jonah's disdain for God actually pictures the core of all created humanity, doesn't it? You've been told two things uh, from, from birth by your culture, okay? Tell me if this is true. I know it is. Uh, tell me, there's two things you've been told from birth by your culture, and I want to show you really quickly how those two things have affected you in the way that you think about God and his rule. You've been told two things. The first thing is you've been told uh, that you are, you, you, you are the, your purest source of truth, meaning purpose and morality. That you yourself, you, inside yourself, you are the truest, most pure place to go find meaning, ethics, morality, purpose. You've got to look inside of yourself. You've been told that. Did you know that? You've been told that. The second thing that you've been told, and this, there's all kinds of reasons, is that radical individuality Radical individuality and total autonomy is freedom. You've been told that too. You know when you walk down the aisle and you have 50 options for toothpaste? You know why? Because we live in a culture that prizes freedom so much, choice so much, individuality so much. How free do you feel though when you're standing in front of 50 tubes of toothpaste? You know where I feel free? Trader Joe's. Because I walk down Trader Joe's and there's one option. I go, oh, praise God for toothpaste. 
I don't care what kind it is. I just want toothpaste, right? We live, we've been sold this lie that the more options, the more freedom, the more choices, the more free that we are. And we've been sold this lie that if we really want to know who we really are, we have to look inside of ourselves, see? We have to look inside of ourselves and we'll find out who we really are. Now, those two laws, they're false, but they're laws. We've absorbed them so deep within our conscience that people like Richard Dawkins look at God and they look at God acting sovereignly over his creation and they go, foul. How can Dawkins be so brazen to say such things to God? Because Dawkins, like so many of us, believes that truth is found within himself. And he doesn't like the God of the Bible, see? He doesn't like the God of the Bible. There is a thread of rebellion that has gone from before creation until now. And it's those two things over and over. It's the two things I just told you. I know better than God, and I do better without God. I know better than God, and I would do better without God. That's what Satan said. That's what Satan believed in the heavens before creation. He said, I know better than God, and I would do better without God. So we had the fall. And evil existed before creation. Did you know that? People ask the question, and it's a good question. Where did evil come from? Did God create the world evil? No, God created the world perfect. Evil existed at the time of creation. And evil found its way into creation. The fall had already taken place. The same thing happens in the garden. Adam and Eve are in perfect harmony with God. They're in fellowship. They say two things. What do they say? They say, I know better than God, and I do better without God. How does that work for them? Well, just look at your life, how you like it. How's life going without God? I mean, how's, going, how's life going? It's death. It's sickness. It's rebellion. It's hurt. It's pain. It's sorrow. That's life in freedom from God's rule. That's life in freedom from God's way. It's painful. It's broken. See, we don't know better than God. And Israel, the Israel that, that Jonah is a, a prophet to, is falling into the same exact trap. See, what they're saying is we know better than God and we'll do better without God. This hits fever pitch when Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, God in human flesh, the ultimate revelation of God, God's Son, comes into the world, and what do we do to him? We murder him. Why? Because the Pharisees thought, we know more than you, we're better than you, and we'd do better without you. They're keeping their own self-rule. They don't want the rule of God. They want to continue to rule themselves. We see the same thing. Now, th this is what we see in Jonah, isn't it? Jonah's saying two things. He's saying, I know better than you, and I would rather live without you. That's what God's saying. That's what the world's saying. That's our default position as humans. I don't want anything to do with this God because I don't like his rules. And his rules, if they actually tell me I should do something different than what I feel, he must not be good. And this is where Christian thinking and worldly thinking are incompatible right now. Have you noticed <laughs> Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that, that your friends probably think that you're a bigot? That you're the most evil, judgmental person? That be, why, why do they think that? They think that because they've been told that the truest thing in them is within them. And then when the Bible comes along, it says, actually, no, that thing in you, it needs to, it needs to change. They go, well, then God's not good. It looks like this. If God's word is incompatible with my will, then God must not be good. Do you see that? If God, if God, if what God wants for me is different than what I want for me, then therefore the equation equals God is not good. That's what the world is saying right now. God's not good because if God was good, he would give me what I want. God's not good because if he was good, he would affirm what I feel. He would tell me that what I feel is valid. No, that's not true. The world is saying that if, if God interferes with my personal freedom, because personal freedom is the most important thing, individuality is the most important thing, if God interferes with my personal freedom, he must not be good. Because we've been told since we were kids that my personal freedom is the most important thing in the world. So if God says, I want you to do this, and I say, I don't want to do that, then he must not be good. Are you seeing that? Are you connecting this? We've made a law higher than God, and that law is that what I want and what I feel and what I think is more real than God. Here's the problem. God is ultimate reality. Not what we feel, not what we think, not what we want. This is what our culture says. God cannot be good if he does not affirm the things that I think are good. 
He's, he must be homophobic, right? If God says that homosexuality is not good, then he hates homosexuals. Why, why do we think that? Because we've believed the lie, we believe the lie that being a homosexual is who you are. No, it's not. No, it's not. Any more than me being a heterosexual is who I am. No, that's not what the point is. If we think God is saying something we don't like, if we think God's saying something we don't like, then we assume he must not be good because he doesn't line up with my morals. I'm morally superior to God. If God does not affirm a woman's choice to terminate her child in the womb, then God must not be good. If God does not affirm gender fluidity, then he must not be good. If God does not affirm religious universality, meaning everyone gets to go to heaven no matter what, he must not be good. If God says there's one way to heaven, that means he's evil, so I'm not going to worship him. This is what the world says. If God does not condone sex outside of marriage, then he's not good. Our culture literally thinks they have outgrown God. They think they have moral high ground over God. They read the Bible and they look down their noses at it and they go, this God must be evil because he does not affirm the things we have decided that are good in our culture. It's the same thing Jonah did. I'm not just trying to to be controversial here. I'm not just trying to bring up controversial issues. But when I read this, I went, wow, my timer's gone. I went, wow, my timer's gone. How do I turn it off? Make it stop. Make it stop. Okay, good grief. When I read this, I went, wow, Jonah looks like me. Jonah looks like the world. Jonah is a representative. He's a picture of the larger issue in the world. And the larger issue is this, that we have chosen to rule ourselves rather than to let God rule us. So what's God's answer to that? Where is the gospel good news for that? How is the gospel good news for that? See, Jesus knew that the most merciful thing he could do for mankind was not just to pay our sin debts, not just to cover our iniquity, not just to forgive, but it was, listen, this is the heart of the gospel. It was to give us a new heart, a new heart that would choose God's rule and choose God's way. A new heart that would see that freedom is not freedom if it is void of God's will and God's presence. That we are most free when we are most surrendered to God. This idea of freedom in the West is so skewed. We think we're free if we can do whatever we want. We think we're happy if we can do whatever we want and be this individual as we want to be. But that's not true. We are created things. We're creatures. We're free when we're most surrendered to our design, when we're free when we're most surrendered to what God made us to be and what God made us to do. I use the analogy all the time, but that's, that's like a fish saying, I'm most free when I'm out of the water. Is a fish free to be out of the water? Is a fish free to be out of the water? Yeah. Is a fish free when it's out of the water? Are you free to sin? Are you free to re- reject God systematically? Sure. Are you free when you're sinning? No, and you're not, sorry, you're not, you're not free when you're sinning because you're actually rebelling from God's design. What if the world's wrong? What if more freedom's not more freedom? What if inclusivity is not actually inclusivity? What if we are not morally superior to God? What if love doesn't mean letting people be and do whatever they feel like? What if my inner inclinations and feelings are not my truest compass? What if the thing you're feeling is actually wrong? What if God's word actually knows more than you know about yourself? What if God's word actually knows why you were made, why you were designed? What if the freest you will ever be is when you are most surrendered to God's will? The way Jonah ends is puzzling, right? It's so abrupt, it's so, it's so random the way it ends. The reason it ends the way it ends is because the question is still open. God is good, God is merciful, God is kind. Will his mercy soften you or will it harden you? Elizabeth Elliot, she said, the same clay that melts the wax hardens, or pardon me, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. God's mercy here has a hardening effect on Jonah, has a softening effect on the Nineveh. The question for all of us is when we see this God, this God that is kind, this God that is mercy, this God that is loving, loving enough to not let us do whatever we want, does he melt us or does he harden us? 
What is Jonah calling us to do? Jonah, as we step back and wrap up the whole book here, it's calling us to see God and who he is. And who is he? He is merciful. He is kind. He is patient. He is relenting. He is just. He is holy. This is the God we are to see. You know, if you get God, you get it all right. If you get God right, you get it all right. If you know who he is, you know who you are. If you know what he wants, you'll know what you're supposed to do. And you can't know yourself if you don't know God. And this is why our culture is so lost right now. It's why they need the gospel. Because like Dawkins, like Dawkins, they have tried to figure out how this world looks without understanding who God is and how he made it. They need the gospel. They need to see the mercy of God in this godless world. Let's pray. Would you guys stand? Father, Jonah 4, Lord, is is convicting for me. Lord, it's convicting for me because I see myself in Jonah in so many ways. Lord, I feel the oppression right now based on what I'm saying. I feel it. I feel, Lord, the enemy at work wanting to keep us from surrendering to you wanting to keep us ruling our own lives, wanting to keep us in this pattern of of Jonah where we assume that we know better than you. And God, my, my prayer this morning is simple. Would you melt us with your mercy? Would your kindness lead us to repentance this morning? Lord, we've believed lies. We've believed that we are sovereign over our own life. We've believed that we know better than you, that we would be better at ruling this world than you. God, it's lies. You are good. You are powerful. You are sovereign. God, this message is not going to get any more popular in this world. But Lord, would you give us the bravery and the faith to trust, Lord, that you know what you're talking about. And Lord, that you did make a way of salvation, Father. Lord, I pray that as we break into some groups, that we have some discussion, Lord, that you would work and that you would move, Lord Jesus, in this time. In your name, amen.